Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. Right. It's kind of a strange thing now because you have all the prerequisites of civil strife without the possibility of it happening. So what happens is people are just really anxious. <laughs> right? There's right. a lot of anxiety in America right now. They've seen how things are falling apart since 2004, and this president is especially clueless. You know. Welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast. Uh, today we have Vassal with us, uh, Vassal Svetovsky with uh, Democracy at Work. Uh, for those of us who've been listening to us for a while, we'll know that Vassal, uh, we interviewed Vassal last year, and he was speaking about the election that was um, gearing up back then, obviously it was early 2020. Um, and we also spoke about Democracy at Work. Uh, welcome, Vassal. Welcome. To have, uh, it's glad, good to have you back. It's good to be here, Richard. Mm, mm. Um, so, yeah, Vessel, the, the reason we brought you in is, I guess we want to do, uh, for lack of a better term, an American uh, stock take, yeah, an American political landscape stock take, to take a look at where things are now, how they've changed, and I guess where they're going. So, like I said, we last spoke, um, you know, Biden uh, was, was actually the, the, the weak candidate um, uh, you know, he was, he was losing the primaries. Bernie was looking strong. Uh, Trump was obviously still the president. And obviously all of that's changed. Now Biden's the president. Bernie is arguably gone or dead. Um, that movement perhaps is, is, is disintegrated. Who knows? We'll see what you think. Um, and yes, so wh where do you see things now? And of course, you know, you, you've discussed, discussed uh, things shaping up with liberals, progressives, and leftists. Um, so how are things shaping up? What's that landscape looking like to you? Okay, well, I'll answer the Bernie question first. Um, I, don't, I don't think things are fundamentally different now from how they were before the, the primary uh, season. Uh, the, the thing that the left wants to accomplish right now is to break through to the mainstream of political discourse, which is something that Bernie Sanders has helped us to do. At the same time, the way to do that is also to break up those trusts and those um, personalities in academia and science that prevent us from, from reaching the masses in a way that's beyond activism and more mainstream. Um, so what you have to look at it this way. I think the expectations of the left in the world was Bernie Sanders is going to come and he's going to be like FDR, New Deal liberal, things, uh, things like that. And he's going to go even farther and implement these democratic socialist policies. I kind of disagree with that. I think that to get to the New Deal, we needed the square deal first, if you look at history, right? So the legacy of Teddy Roosevelt greatly contributed to the ability of the progressive movement in America to reach the mainstream so that they can implement those structural and institutional changes later. If we look at how far gone the Democratic Party is today, they will not even raise the minimum wage to a livable wage. Uh, listening to some, you know, I don't know if your viewers know how they did it. I assume many of them do. They could have raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour over a span of five years, which is inadequate as it is. Uh, but instead, they listen to some irrelevant parliamentarian that they appointed and they can overrule or, or uh, reappoint someone else at any time. And when you have a party that's that far gone, really your objective should have been something like, and I think this is what Bernie Sanders would have been able to accomplish, and whoever comes next out of the progressive uh, movement in America will have to do it. They're going to have to break up these trusts. They're going to have to set up outposts in, in academia and these other institutions that allow leftists to go beyond activism and into the mainstream to talk about these things and talk about why they're good, why we need structural changes and why presidents being continually impeded by the um, corporate establishment is really, really bad, um, which we don't really see. The academies are on lockdown in a liberal discourse and the structures and the institutions are all against whatever the popular support is there. It doesn't really matter ultimately that the, our policies are popular. It took the progressive movement, despite being popular, 40 years to break through to the mainstream, which mm. I think is the trajectory that democratic socialists are looking at. They might be 10 years in, but they need to, to break trust first. Uh, and unfortunately, what Biden is going to do is the exact opposite. He's bringing in the technical uh, 
um, telecommunications companies and all the tech industry that's that has emerged to be sort of number one uh, in the world right now, they're bringing them in and making them even more assertive in government affairs, which is the exact opposite of what needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but our objectives have not changed fundamentally despite Bernie. I don't think there was a Bernie movement you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an electoral campaign. So those things, we call them movements, but they're not. They're just there to elect the candidate and they disappear after. That's not a failing of his that it disappeared. That's something normal that happens all the time. So the movement mm-hmm. needs to come after. When we have when we have somebody that breaks down trust and now we can finally reach the mainstream, then organizations are going to start coalescing and then you have an emergence of a powerful movement that goes beyond just popular support and activism, which is where it's at right now. Mm-hmm. So do you think that, um, that, the, that, that, so that is happening right now? So Bernie, the candidate, the, the momentum behind the candidate, of course, is gone, but we're at the stage or that is at the stage of building that momentum of an actual uh, movement. Is it at that stage? Yeah, so the way social movements um, sort of occur, there's a kind of emergent stage where, as I said, the characteristics are there's high level of factionalism, there's people who are, uh, it has some popular support among the masses, but there's, it's sort of set into activism and we're sort of, we're hitting that wall of this stage that we're in. The next stage is we need somebody out there who has these legitimate authority, who has a lot of support and can actually get some things done, to see him clashing with the powers that be, to see him breaking up trusts, to see him forming like a square deal type of agenda. That yeah. breaks us through to larger sectors of the, uh, of the population, like the media, like the uh, academies and so on. And that brings us into another stage of our movement formation, which is coalescence is what it's called. And that's when factionalism sort of reduces and people develop a sort of purpose and agenda. Now, the challenge for the left is a little bit different. A challenge for the left is to not have that agenda go back to what eventually happened in the 1930s, which was FDR's type of New Deal liberalism. We want that agenda to be more transformative. But it doesn't. It, it it could go against us, and it could be just a, another New Deal type of agenda. That's possible too. But in all cases, that's where we're at. We have to break through these other power centers that Bernie didn't have. All the media was against them. All the academies were against them. You know, these one of the most um, where where I'm at is one of the most liberal academies. One of the most progressive academies. They were all for for the liberal candidates like Joe Biden. So. Those those power centers are still on lockdown until you have somebody break through and introduce progressivism and or leftism uh, to a mainstream audience in the way that breaks up trusts and causes a clash with the with the ruling class and with their powers. And then you will see a more coalescent movement emerge from that. Okay, so um, you mentioned obviously other groups. Uh, liberals. Um, you also use the term uh, progressives, and I think in, in, the, in the preamble to this, you sent me a message. Uh, you mentioned leftists um, and how things are shaping up between these groups. So, um, if you don't mind explaining to us, I mean, of course, I, I assume you mean the liberal establishment. So, when you say liberals, you mean um, the sort of Congress members of Congress and the sort of party sort of people that hang around all the familiar names that we know. I assume you're talking about the people in power. Um, I'm and not sure. No. Okay. No. In fact, I, I, I exclude them because I assume it's impossible to tell what they even think. These people who are in power. I mean, they'll, they'll talk about and harp on minimum wage for a year and then listen to an irrelevant parliamentarian. What I'm talking about is the people on the street who are the liberals, who are who are people who develop progressive ideology, and who are people who develop uh, left wing ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I see. Okay. So. Um, at the point now, I mean, are you saying that the, the liberals and the progressives, are these the same people? Are they coalescing around the same stuff? Are there differences and divides between them? So what, what's the, what, is the, what are the differences between um, the liberals and the progressives and the, the leftists in America right now? And how are they coalescing if they are coalescing? Uh, they're, they're not coalescing, but to answer your question, as you know, I study Plato. So I have a sort of different perspective than most people. Most people would look at what they 
argue for and compare and contrast that um, or what they support and so on. I don't. I don't think so. I think we have to go deeper and trace sort of the pathology of how these people develop into into what they are. When I look at liberals, and what I mean by that is people who make these uh, those liberal decisions, like support Biden. Eighty five percent of Bernie supporters supported Biden, mm. and a lot of left wing podcasters who claim to be socialists and all that left leftist, they uh, end up supporting Biden. How does that happen? And there's sort of this common trend that I see among all those people who make the liberal decisions. They look at politics as arithmetic, right? That's the platonic view. See how what the person is actually seeing and what they're capable of seeing regarding who they are in order to under, try to more understand what's internally working within them. So I know that sounds complicated, but here's what I mean. Mm-hmm. When you reduce politics to arithmetic, and this is what liberal academies have been teaching for the last 80 years in, in this country. What happens is you look at things as sort of an individual actors and these individuals, they all enter into this marketplace of ideas or whatever, and they make decisions, they make choices. Primarily the biggest choice they're gonna make is voting. Um, and so the idea is for these individuals to be trained to weigh the pros and the cons and to make a decision where the the candidate with the least amount of cons or the most amount of pros ends up being the victor and they choose to follow that person. And we saw that with the leftists voting for Biden. We saw people saying, well, you know, Trump is worse. That was the argument we kept hearing. Trump is worse, Trump is worse. Um, and that that's really what develops into this pathology, what I call liberals. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. there's, a, there's a mistake that fundamentally comes from this um, that, that I see. They cannot explain even the most basics. Not First of all, they cannot even explain the most basics of what constitutes sort of a polity or system or anything, right? I mean, they cannot even explain where did these individuals and their preferences come from. It's fundamentally opposed to Marxist thought and analysis, which is, okay, uh, the structures and institutions and the surplus value that creates them sort of tries to get people to think this way, that way, and so on. Um, so yeah, arithmetic has always been fundamentally against Marxism. One of the founding scripts of the arithmetic politics as arithmetic uh, method of analysis was brought by a guy called Manker Olson, um, who essentially wrote two chapters explaining why, why politics should be viewed as arithmetic, what collective action problems are, and then the rest of the book is just ranting against unions and Marxists. And this is a book that's very much cited in business circles and economic circles. And for the past 80 years, for lack of, even though they know that this stuff is problematic, they've been teaching the politics as arithmetic uh, spectrum regardless, especially in political science and, and economics. It's a very myopic, that means short-sighted view of things where you can't really explain what the next decision is going to be or how you came to the decision that you're making, right? And that's the frustration that we have with these left-wing podcasters that that support Biden. Okay, but what happens when you choose Biden and the country moves farther and farther right? They can't can't explain that. They can't explain what happens, how come when the New Deal happened, five million people voted for socialist parties. Right. So they defected against a guy who was very progressive and they ended up getting more of what they wanted by defecting from the Democratic Party. How did they explain that? They can't explain that. So that's our that's our frustration with them. And then the progressives, they have a different view that sort of goes back to a very old liberalism, maybe. Maybe it's more of a Rousseauian trend with the liberalism, but I'm not going to go deep into the philosophy of it. They basically see politics as coalition building and an exercise of popular sovereignty, which means they want to build a coalition that's popular, that creates progress, and they want to support that. So they see politics as like, oh, this is my uh, group organization. Let me go with that organization that agrees with me. Let me form form a bond. And then we get to, we form more and more bonds until we have this power to implement change and we're going to do whatever's, whatever's popular. Mm. That sort of populist trend has been going on uh, throughout history in every empire, including the, the, the Roman Empire. People have had this view. So 
Mm-hmm. I believe it's also problematic because why? Systematic change is never popular. Fundamental change is popular, right? So you even look at what the stuff they're proposing. Okay, we want Medicare. We want livable wage. That's perfectly fine. No one in the left disagrees with that. But look how simple these proposals are. They fundamental changes. You could argue Medicare is a fundamental change. I would. Um, but they're not going to change systems and social contracts and all that. And we've seen in the past progressives when they wield these popular power and they go with the popular policies, they implement the ones that are the most uh, uh, popular. They aren't the systematic changes that take place. In the Marxist view, you can't get – first thing, the system needs to be shocked first, mm-hmm. right? And then people develop an attitude towards systematic change. As long as you have the surplus of the employers creating the education system, the cultural institutions, the political institution, you're always going to get a sort of a narrow spectrum of ideas that preserves, even if, if it wants to progress it, fine, but it preserves the social contracts of that society that be. And <clears throat> right, so their policies are too meager, I think is the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe as for the leftists, and I think you're most familiar with, with this trend of people, uh, we tend to see politics as a sort of a master-slave dialectic, where it is, a, it, is a, it is a mortal struggle, and the person who compromises the least and exercises the most strength and force ends up eventually winning the day. Um, and I think the leftist, the leftist perspective and why they have these absolute principles, like I'm not supporting Biden on principle, you know, I don't like him, he's a warmonger, so screw him. Um, that kind of attitude, when mo- more and more people adopt it, I think it leads to more and more change that that spectrum of people wants, right? The conservatives know this better than everybody. That's why they're winning the last 80 years uh, and the New Deal coalition has been totally th- discarded. They're, they're not for they don't even state what they're actually for. They're stating for absolute principles. Like I want government gone from my life. I want um, guns to be totally available to everybody, no regulation. I want less government regulation. And that kind of politics, it it literally works. When people have those absolute principles and they go and they fight for them, it works. That's what they're getting. They're getting less and less regulation through time and to the point where even the regulation that exists is written by the corporations anyway, so it's not really um, regulative. It's A lot of mm-hmm. it is there to help them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right, so they resist all things that they're against, and they push for all things that they're for, and they end up getting what they want. I think that the liberals and progressives would be wise to analyze that and see how they're failing and how these people have been beating beating them up, even though they're a minority for the last 80 years, they're, they've been doing better than them. Um, and the conclusion to that is that the left, the leftist perspective of politics, the master-slave dialectic, is more explanatory than viewing things as arithmetic or as coalition building. Um, okay. So hopefully we can get them to accept that trend, and I think if they do, they will start thinking more like us and supporting our agendas. I see, I see. So within this, I mean, you've mentioned liberals, progressives, leftists. Um, I'm looking at uh, from a class perspective, a class analysis here. Um, you know, is it where does a workers' movement fit into this? Is there such a thing as a workers' movement in the in, in the U.S.? I mean, and and leftists. I mean, um, sometimes it can feel that these things don't actually uh, focus so much on on class analysis on on a class perspective. Um, uh, yeah, would you, is there an actual workers' movement in the U.S.? As of right now, no. When we talk about class consciousness, first of all, I'm not an authority to say how it's going to manifest or what it's going to look like because it doesn't hasn't it doesn't exist at the moment. Mm-hmm. Our class analysis of that is, um, um, as I said, when the employers designate surplus to create these institutions, these structures, um, and so on, you get this narrow spectrum of opinion, whether it's progressive or conservative, or whether it wants the system to move forward or backwards, it still preserves that system. So what you're going to see is if the left wing succeeds in building more workplaces that are structured differently, 
that are structured, for example, the way w worker self-directed enterprises are, um, where the workers direct their own value in the enterprise. And those enterprises start forming bonds with each other and they start to designate surplus to other educational and political and cultural institutions. Then you're going to have this sort of a cultural clash uh, happen between the institutions that we support and the institutions that employers support. And that sort of, that's a recipe for class consciousness and for a genuine workers movement. Um, we're not there yet. We're a few steps behind. Again, we need to break up these trusts so that we can break through to the mainstream. And then once we coalesce and build a movement, if we can get that movement to accept the left-wing direction and start supporting those democratic enterprises, then we can be at the stage, which is the next stage, institutionalization. I know that sounds that sounds complimented. I hate quoting back stuff that I've learned at, acad at academies, but I think this is important to grasp. Emergence, coalescence, and institutionalization are the three big steps of a social movement. And we're at this emergence stage. When we coalesce and break through to the mainstream, we'll coalesce, and then we'll start institutionalizing. And when a class starts institutionalizing, that sets up class consciousness. Right. It's a whole different animal that I cannot predict how it would look like. Um, in sorry, in terms of breaking the trusts, then. So, um, uh, yeah, you said sort of you know emergence, coalescence, and 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 breaking the trust is within that. Um, you know. When we break trusts, what does that specifically mean? And and if we use an example, so I assume it means uh, breaking sort of ideas in a sense. So if we take the fifteen dollar per hour minimum wage, was that an example of people coalescing around an issue that was going to break break the sort of status quo? Um, and if not, then what would you consider an example of breaking uh, breaking the trusts? So a concrete example would be to. Uh, of breaking trusts, you know, in, in the Bretton Woods agreement, they left bankers out of out of the discussion to develop monetary policy. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that that's an extreme example of breaking these corporate trusts with with, with, with government um, that happened because of the trust that were broken earlier. But what we really need is to get these uh, the corporate establishment and sort of separate them at least from some people that are in the mainstream so that those some people can break our ideas through to the allow us to have that discourse in, in the in the mainstream. I mean, Wall Street basically, if you look at the WikiLeaks emails of Barack Obama in the primary, Wall Street picked his cabinet. That, that's unacceptable and that 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 needs to be broken up and if you have a system that allows Wall Street to pick the president's cabinet literally tell them this is who you're going to appoint um, and then he goes and does it and pretends like he came up with those with those ideas himself uh, it's very hard to implement any type of changes um, the so, that, that seems like quite a quite tech industry the tech industry, the intelligence community, and the military-industrial complex, their hold on, on discourse and power needs to be broken up in some way. Um, and the bankers, of course. I see. I mean, that seems quite, quite a high uh, thing to break. I mean, if you're saying that that's one of the first things that needs to happen, uh, well, not necessarily first, but, but if it's high on the priority list of, of breaking the trust, as you call it, which, which in a concrete way means... Um, breaking the, the, the sort of the, the representation of Wall Street on important boards and on important on important panels, um, but that's that's quite a quite a high level uh, relationship. So you're talking about breaking the ability for the, the representatives of the bourgeois to sit on the panels of government, on the panels of the state. Um, I not, mean, not how completely, not not completely, but in a in a way that allows for some actors to. Uh, be more independent, appear more independent, and clash with the, with the powers that are rather than just be their puppet and work with them. Because as long as we're in a relationship where people like Biden and Obama are, are so allegedly the alternative, yet 100% the friends and the, and the favorites of the power structures, it's hard for us to go anywhere beyond activism at this point. Mm. But I mean, what, what, why would why would um, surely you know the, the the coalescence and the building of um, a workers' movement, the building of, of of a progressive movement, would have to 
uh, you know, there would have to be a lot of weight behind it. There'd have to be um, a lot of power in any shape or form behind that movement before uh, the president or any other sort of uh, person of power would even consider uh, moving, you know, a union representative onto the board or putting um, X, you know, leftist individual or grouping of individuals onto some sort of power-making or state apparatus decision-making body. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't give up these things easily. There would have to be, um, you know, some threat or some reason, some something to scare them into doing that, because it's not something they would give up uh, very easily, right? It could be, but it's not the same as the threat and the, the level of organization needed for something to, um, after it has already co coalesced or during its, its coalescence stage. Like, for example, the New Deal era versus the Square Deal era is, I think, the, the best example of this. During the New Deal era, to get that kind of change, you needed a very strong workers and union movement. But for implementing something more like the Square Deal, yes, you had... You, you, you had unions that were more, more factionalized at the time, but you had unions. What you really had was popular demand and activism. Uh, the progressive movement was more based along popular demand and activism, which is sort of where we're at. And you have, I mean, there is an enormous amount of pressure that can be exerted by um, popular, the expression of popular sovereignty or what the masses want. It's not the same as the pressure that you would exert if you had a strong uh, national federation of worker cooperatives, for example, or if you had a strong um, a national assembly of trade unions, for example. That's even better. I would, that's definitely better. And it's more inducive to bigger institutional changes. But where we're at, we do need to put pressure on some of these people who claim or at least to adhere to build a base on what the popular uh, uh, issues of the masses are and how things have been falling apart for the last 40 years in this country, uh, I think you can pressure them to, to implement some kind of square deal legislation that breaks up trust and allows us to dig deeper into the mainstream. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. I see. Like, so, for um, example, our PAC is not on principle against... Mm -hmm supporting any Democrat at this stage. Our, well, the way we do it is if they support workplace democracy and if they state their public support for workplace democracy, we'll support them and we can, we can fund them. Um, mm -hmm. That's a more strategic decision about where we're at than other more absolute decisions that people could make. I see, I see. Okay, so I mean, obviously, there's something we haven't brought up, which is, which is a, a big event of the last year, um, which uh, in some circles, it's the most defining thing. Um, it, obviously, January 6th is what I'm referring to, um, the, the, the insurrection, the riot, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, what, what do you see there? Because obviously, in some circles, that's being seen as, as um, the beginning of, uh, of, of, of something, you know, of a movement that's, that's very worrisome to them. Some people obviously equate it with fascist uh, sort of uprisings in the past. Some people are, usually Republicans, are playing it down. They just say it was just a couple of people that just, you know, ran into a building. Um, what do you see there? Is it a high watermark or is it the beginning of something from January 6th? So, in the first place, it wasn't an insurrection. They didn't have any plan to take power and to uh, uh, ban other people from power and stuff like that. Uh, it was a riot. Mm -hmm. Um, I do believe that the in intelligence apparatus has been involved from day one in shaping the narrative in a way that that suits them mm -hmm. uh, by calling it an insurrection and by calling immediately for more censorship, for more uh, surveillance, uh, flexing their muscle, using their their the technical systems to track down the people who were there at the riot and talking about how they can prevent this from ever happening again. Uh, in that sense, they, these people were very much useful idiots for the intelligence apparatus in the United States. Mm. Okay. Um, and we have seen since then just a remarkable increase in oppression from online algorithms, people uh, 
going down, sometimes their reach is going down to zero or on average, people are going down their reach 70% or something. Uh, the way they're doing it is they're labeling people from a spectrum ranging from normal to radical within the middle people who are borderline. And they're, they're basically taking all the borderline people and reducing their reach down maybe 70, uh, 70 75%. And they're taking the radical people and reducing their reach down almost completely. And of course, you're talking about on, on, on all forms of social media? All forms of social media, they're doing this. Yes. I see. And the only people capable of building those algorithms that are going to label people as, uh, as borderline, as radical, as normal, it's the intelligence apparatus. They're the only people capable of doing that. And if you read Snowden's book, they've been trying to do that for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. His book is called Permanent Record. It's an amazing book. I recommend that people read it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's essentially what they want to do with by building a permanent record on every individual. They can classify them, right? That's the purpose of building the permanent record. And once they classify you, they can decide, okay, this person belongs in a position of high social capital because they're going to be pro-system. Uh, these people here, we need to we need to cut them out because uh, what they're doing is bad for us. And this is what the intelligence community has been doing since the 40s and 50s. That's what that. They were initially created as a sort of, they did not have the same level of foreign influence in their origin that they did here. If you go back to their origins, one of the first major leaks that came out was their close ties with the Congress of Cultural Freedom or whatever. And uh, their close ties with the with student organizations in, in America. So what they were doing is they were co-opting artists and they were co-opting Hollywood and they were co-opting academies. And they were purging all the Marxists and leftists from those positions. Which, mm -hmm. they, which they still do. Um, this is sort of an advent of that. They're going back to their Cold War ways, which is, okay, how do we protect the system mm. while it is unpopular and while there's so much opposition to it? Well, you know, we can't stop the opposition completely. So let us instead um, classify people and make sure that all the people who support the system are in the positions that matter. They're the ones talking to students at the academies. They're the ones who people see on the television screen. And if only the people who support the system appear to others, then even though the numbers suggest that people are discontent and all that, it won't really matter. It won't manifest into a movement. That's the mm -hmm. thinking of the intelligence apparatus in America. That's what they've done in the past, and that's what they're doing now. And they're using January 6th as a pretext for getting that done. Okay. Now, as so, for the Trump MAGA yeah. movement, uh, yes, I was going to say, yeah, exactly, because, yeah. uh, of course, so you, you're saying that, of course, the January 6th has been used by the intelligence operators, the, the deep state, to use a, a MAGA phrase, um, uh, to, you know, give themselves more powers, to justify their skills, to justify what they do, and, and then obviously to push the narrative and push the, the agenda of, of undermining a progressivism or undermining a workers' movement or undermining um, the stuff that would have gathered potentially back in the same time in the Cold War. But, um, okay, yeah, so what does it mean, though, in terms of the actual, uh, the movement, the, the MAGA movement, the, the Trump movement? I mean, you know, there's also the divisiveness. You know, how, how divided do you think America is? I mean, is it, is it, you know, nearly civil war sort of levels? Are things that bad? And, um, yeah, and where is, where is the Trump movement going to go if, it, if there is such a thing left? So an analogy that I would use is you have you have a spark for a civil war here. You also have Kindle for a civil war here. And as a Yugoslavian, I know that more than anybody. Um, one of the first things that goes with, before people start shooting each other is they stop telling jokes. For example, Zizek did a YouTube video on on this, and he says uh, one of the one of the biggest worrying signs in America is they stopped uh, making fun of each other um, and started trying to trying to cancel one another. That's a sign that they're ready to fight one another um yeah. and it really is I, i've seen i see that here i see the parallels to yugoslavia i see the disconnect between the mainstream and, and the people um and all that is there but you don't have anything to keep the fire going richard right. uh, so there is not there's not going to be a civil civil war here or a balkanization or that kind of stuff at least not not anytime soon because there's nothing to keep the fire going um in Yugoslavia, there was all sort of foreign powers that could just come in and give a bunch of weapons and money to people who want the civil war to happen. We don't, mm -hmm. we don't have that. Uh, it would be a huge disaster for a lot of countries who d depend on exports to the U.S. Uh, for that to happen. And those are all the major power centers. So 
you you won't see something like that happening here. Right. Right. It's kind of a strange thing now because you have all the prerequisites of civil strife without the possibility of it happening. So what happens is people are just really anxious. <laughs> right? There's right. a lot of anxiety in America right now. Mm-hmm. They've seen how things are falling apart since 2004. And this president is especially clueless. You know, he keeps gaslighting that he just cut poverty in half with his one year child tax credit. Like that's going to do anything or his his infrastructure plan, which is only two trillion dollars. Like that's going to help. You know, there was a study in China. It takes them like 17 million dollars to build like a a mile of, of rail, a high speed rail. And in America, it takes them like 57 million or something like that to build the same thing. Uh, there's no systematic analysis of how that comes to be. The fact that the government just sends money to private companies and they price gouge it. Uh, mm. there, there's just no, no systematic analysis on that, on that front. So this infrastructure plan is not going to help whatever Biden passed with the COVID relief. That's not going to, uh, stop the, the downfall of the U S that has been happening since 2004, since 2004, we've been worse off every single year. Mm. So, and my generation is one of the only generations that's worse off than their parents. And by a long degree, it's not even like, oh, we're a little worse off. It's like the home ownership rate of millennials is like something like 5%. Uh, right. Just right. horrible. <laughs> no one right. right. No, no, sure. My generation too. Sure. I know yeah. that one. But um, okay. So, so the, the Trump movement though. So it, yeah. So uh, onto the Trump, the, the Trump movement, I think is, um, it does have a fascist tendency in the sense that when workers start becoming right wing, it, it manifests in a way that's uh, culturally very right wing and economically either center or, or left wing. Uh, and what's interesting is, though, you've had this demand for left wing policy among Trumpists up sometimes and all of them support Medicare. I think like half of them support Medicare, but you haven't seen Trump either appeased them in any way whatsoever. He went in and ruled like a right-wing libertarian, not a fascist. Mm. He, uh, he could have used the, the pandemic to seize power more for the government. He didn't do any of that. Um, his biggest thing was cutting taxes to the rich at a time when they've needed taxes cut least uh, in history. Mm. So th- there's just such a disconnect between what the people in the movement actually support and what their actual leader wants mm. to do which is just be himself and winning and taking power for himself and using it to implement right wing, uh, traditional right wing policies that aren't in any way popular. So mm-hmm. I, it's it, the reason it's hard to analyze them is because their their leader doesn't do the things that they want and they support him anyway. It, to me, it's a lot like the cult of Obama. I think it's more, less fascist and more cult like. Uh, because I do believe that in studying the fascists, they had some sort of theoretical blueprint of what they wanted, and they had a coalescence around actual ideas um, that occurred, and they had actual intellectuals and people write uh, theoretical texts like Rocco and um, uh, right. Heidegger was even one of the biggest philosophers, was fascist at the time. I don't think it's manifesting in the same way, but the foundations of it are similar. It's the despair of the working class in an epoch where there is no left-wing alternative that has emerged to help them, right? right? If the liberals are the left-wing, I mean, and if you accept that, if you're a conservative and you don't know these things, you've never been introduced to to actual leftists and you think the liberals are the left-wing, my God, I don't know what to do in that situation. So I can, uh, uh, right. Right. But I mean, of course, within the, you know, the Republicans, are they're talking about a, a civil war and it's an internal civil war. So not, not the national civil war, not the civil war against the liberals, but they're, they're at war with each other. Uh, apparently, apparently there's a, a huge power struggle with, uh, you know, what's um, Dick Cheney's daughter. She, she's, uh, she's being you know, ostracized and, um, you know, they're still, they cannot, uh, move beyond Trump and, and January 6th, sort of, they need to support what happened or, and, or sort of, um, under report how bad it was. Um, and, and they seem to be stuck in some sort of moment themselves. Do you think there'll be a split? Do you think, do you think the, the conservative movement, the conservative 
supporters will split? I don't think that under the current electoral rules in America, there will be a split of the Republican um, Party, so to speak, more than just the different faction emerging within it. Mm -hmm. um, if Mr. Trump wants to do something akin to what, for example, uh, Abraham Lincoln did, which was form his own party and use, use his social capital that, that a lot of people had acquired working within the, power, the two parties that existed at that time in order to fund this new Republican Party that Abraham Lincoln uh, did, then you could see some parallels with that. Not comparing Trump to Abraham Lincoln, don't, don't, to his policies, <laughs> don't, don't confuse me. But I'm sure happy in the that. sense yeah. that at that time, the Supreme Court and the, uh, the power apparatus were so in favor of um, maintaining slavery, the Republican Party emerged as a sort of, I distrust institutions. I don't, that institutions are bought and I don't like them. And I trust Mr. Lincoln and I'm going to put my trust in Mr. Lincoln and whatever he says is good, I am going to support. There was a clear mentality there that was like that. And that did end up causing a civil strife among the powers that be and eventually end up causing a civil war at that time. You could find that parallel, not with the policy or the things that they support, but in the foundations of a new movement emerging within the two parties. I don't know if Mr. Trump has it in him to be such, I don't think he has the charisma or the intellect to orchestrate something like that and make it happen. Mm. If somebody wanted to, and this is where we're in sort of a dangerous territory with here. If you had an actual fascist elected who was smart and who could get this, the, the, what he wanted done, you could see that happening. You could see him building them from a coalition of people who simply distrust the government and will put their trust in that guy. Um, but I don't think Trump is going to do that. Okay. In terms of, I mean, let's let's um, get, get get your crystal ball out. Where are things going to go? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different uh, things to cover in that, but specifically, um, I guess. Do you think Trump will run again in 2024? And if he did, uh, would he win? Um, where do you see the workers' movement going, if there is going to be one, or coalescence of, um, of progressives, if you might want to call it that, um, breaking the trusts? Is, is that going to happen? Um, yeah. Where do you think go, see things going over the next year and maybe four years? Perhaps we'll speak again in another year and see, see how correct you were. Yeah, you know, I don't like to make a normative statement. I think Richard Wolf doesn't like making those type of predictions either. But uh, in right, right. no one does with this. <laughs> um, <clears throat> will Mr. Trump run again? Hmm. If he if he runs or he doesn't run, he ha he's going to pick the next Republican candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we can separate what Trump the level of uh, influence that Trump has from the level of influence, for example, that Obama has on the left. A lot of what conservatives do, they react to stuff that's, uh, well, not on the left, among the liberals, I should say. Uh, a lot of what conservatives do is a reaction to things that have already happened among the liberal sects. So President Obama picked Biden. Without his endorsement, Biden is not president right now. President Obama has the power to, to get rid of strikes just simply by calling people and asking them. Okay, this is a person with enormous power among the liberal circles who they trust almost, it's anathema to, to many uh, liberals to even criticize Obama. And if you criticize Obama, it's a signal that you're, that you're beyond the pale uh, in, in these circles of politics, uh, which is why leftists just get kicked out of liberal groups all the time. As soon as they're spotted, they're kicked out. One thing you say against Obama, you're kicked out. So... Uh, but Obama is not so out front about it. He's not so, if he was a character in a video game, I think he would, he would have his persuade maxed out and Trump would have his intimidate maxed out as well. But, uh, <laughs> I, yeah. you know, he's more out and open about it and that, that makes it more noticeable. Whereas he has the same level of influence among Republicans that Obama has among Democrats in many ways. So no matter what, Trump is going to pick the next candidate. And whether that's himself or not, well, I, I'm not going to predict that. I do mm -hmm. tend to think he's going to run himself. 
but if he's content with maintaining power behind the scenes, which is also an addictive thing to do, Putin has done it in, in Russia, where you can take breaks from being president, and as long as you have power behind the scenes, it's a, uh, it makes you feel good as well. He might, he might go down that route. Um, okay. And what was the next, what was the other prediction you wanted me to make? Um, a general sort of over the next four years where you, if, if you see a coalescence of a workers' movement or of a progressive movement, um, no, I think they're gonna get further where divided. are things going? Hmm? They're going to get further divided and it's happening now because the people who elected AOC and JFL and all those, uh, the founders of the Justice Democrats, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically, let's say one of the founders, Kyle Kulinski, has said that they're basically betraying the principles of the found uh, of the founding organization. Mm -hmm. um, that accusation is going to fester and grow, and among progressive circles, they're going to see that what the progressives are doing in office, which is with this politics as arithmetic uh, view that they have, they're just supporting Biden because he's a uh, lesser evil. People, yeah. That's going to create a lot of division uh, in in those sects. Mm. And then when you have a primary again in 2024, which I think Biden is going to run, he's going to he's a shoe in to win. There's going to be some more despair among the left in that situation. Wait, so you think Biden will be. You think Biden will run in 2024? Yeah, yeah. There's no 80, reason to suspect he won't. 81, 82. Huh? I think he'll be 81 or 82 years old. Do you think he would really run at that age? Yes, I think so. Um, the, these people have a, have the, the idea of them just stepping down willingly from uh, from the presidential office when you know they got a doctor right on hand that can resuscitate him immediately, five seconds away from them. I don't, I don't, I don't see him stepping down. And even if he does, you're going to see President Kamala or, or somebody that he, he he picks. But he's I believe he's going to run again. Um, mm. OK, OK. So you think I mean, and even if he didn't, it would just be another we, part we of would the have to of wait until 2028. And this is this is why I, I did not want to vote for Biden. And I urge people not to when Biden has won. And now you have to wait until 2028. And even then, if he's elected again in 2024, he's going to have so much power that he's going to pick the next guy, just like Obama could pick the next guy and just like Trump could pick the next guy. So you, the left might see themselves waiting for another primary season, potentially for 2032. Um, mm. that, if, that's if, 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 if they're only focused on electoral politics. Yeah, that's why we need to shift focus away from pre the presidential electoral politics and realize we're not going to have a guy in office for a very long time now. And we need to focus more uh, locally and building coalitions with other third parties and so on and, and bring them into whatever is currently um, alive of the labor movement, which today is going in a more democratic enterprises cooperatives direction. Uh, and bringing them those those centers together is more our, our objective. Um, yeah. Okay. So yes, yeah. so electoral politics, of course, bourgeois politics is doomed um, in, in that sense for the workers' movement. Um, yeah, as 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 someone else is pretty Richard. It's not it's not doomed in the workers' movement because electoral politics in a bourgeois democracy is politics. It just that's that's what politics is for most people. When you go knock on their doors and you talk to them about politics, the the, the only thing they think right. about is elections. Right. And at the same time, the way America is, is structured, the way the laws are structured, you can't even like make a democratic enterprise without approval from the government. And many in many cases, we're basically uh, regulated out of existence. We don't exist technically uh, democratic enterprises because of the basis of the laws that prevent us from from hiring the way we do and structuring ourselves the way we do. So electoral politics is very important because we need local support. We need the support of local politicians to get anything done, even something simple as getting people together and registering them as an entity. Like mm -hmm. that, that's the extent of control that modern governments have. So we cannot make statements against electoral politics given how much we need them. But at the same time, it's not the end all be all. And it's not, Looking at the presidential and looking at these national elections now is going more and more 
uh, is going to dissipate. And I think we need to focus more locally is at least what we're trying to encourage people to do. I will admit it's very hard because progressives are 100 uh, percent inclined to the national level and local elections get absolutely no, almost no intention. Mm -hmm. uh, but to make a big difference as far as getting our, ourselves registered and getting actual organizations up so that we can influence politics more effectively later on. Right. Right. Okay. Um, you mentioned, of course, then, so you we're talking about building that kind of stuff, building that movement, um, making those bonds and, and uh, I guess, uh, coalescing, coalition building, also then using electoral politics, you know, as, as a tool within that. To, to sort of ratchet things up step by step and to, to do these small things before you get to the bigger things. Um, but you've also mentioned, of course, and of course, that requires lots of different types of work and lots of different types of engagement. But you also mentioned um, earlier, Edward Snowden uh, was talking about how the state apparatus, the, the spy agencies, um, are uh, reducing the, the, the reach of people and uh, are um, you know, influencing and um, controlling what people see, in a sense. Um, so it seems quite the task then to try and build these coalitions, to try and build these kind of movements um, using all the things that need to be done. When you, but you have a, a state apparatus that undermines one of the most crucial elements of, of, of uh, politics right now, which is, of course, social media. So, so yeah, what, what, what's, what are your thoughts on that and what's, what's happening there? Well, let's not kid ourselves. The intelligence apparatus, as far as what they're trying to do, they're not being very effective. And they know they're not being very effective, right? The left is still reaching people on Twitter and all these social media sites at a, at a record pace and turning people over at a record pace. So what they're doing is they're playing catch up to us, basically, because we figured out how to manipulate their online algorithms and train little like basic uh, um, people who are 20, 21 years old to to create pages and have those pages that somehow reach 3 million people, 30 million people, and so on. We've done that. And now they're saying, oh, shoot, they know how to manipulate these algorithms. We need to just somehow silence them because the algorithm itself is not enough. They need to be, they, the algorithm needs to be rigged to identify threats and immediately uh, re respond to them. I don't that 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 kind of work is still in its infancy, and I don't think it's going to be as effective as they as they think it's going to be, and it's not proving effective. I mean, out of all the Twitter users, you you see um, the loudest voices are the ones on on the left, and everybody has noticed that nationally. Um, so this is where we're at in that respect. Is kind of like when the communist uh, guerrillas took over Cuba and started uh, fighting these guerrilla wars in other countries, the CIA started to sort of panic and they started to um, create their own guerrilla programs, right? They had to reverse engineer what we were doing, what the communists were doing. So that's what's going on now. They're reverse engineering stuff that we've been at the forefront of, and it's gonna take them some time to catch up. And then they might, they did defeat guerrilla warfare eventually. So hopefully they don't defeat our ability to reach people. Um, they could. But we still have an opportunity and we still have time in that respect. It's not like they're so powerful and they know everything and they're just going to squash mm -hmm. us. Um, it's very difficult to do that in these online spaces. So in the, in the, just, just to, if you can give us an example of that one. So you're saying that um, obviously leftists, communists, Marxists are, are organizing online and creating pages that reach thousands, uh, perhaps millions of people and are um, you know, doing effective work in that sense. Uh, and you're saying that the state apparatus, the, the, the agencies are, are trying to catch up and doing the same thing. What, what sort of um, pages or what kind of movements are they building? What, what, what are the, the terms and the, the sort of um, groups that, that they are okay, building so that, that counter the, the leftist ones? Yeah, I think, I think there was a, a miscommunication. What I tried to say with the guerrilla example is when, when I say that they build an, a counter guerrilla forces that eventually countered us and defeated us. If you look back, I should have clarified, if you look back, what they did was they trained people to do so. They don't, the CIA doesn't take much direct control or direct involvement of things by virtue of the fact that these are, you know, people who come from mostly from academies and mostly technologists, they're a minority of the population. And 
uh, it's just inefficient for them to build movements themselves to go encounter other things when they could simply train people and create the movement that way through indirect means, which is more effective for them. So what they're doing is they're training people uh, in, in liberal circles to build these pages and, and they're boosting those pages that they know come from people who are, uh, who are, who are liberals who support the system. Mm. Uh, and we, we just see that happening. I mean, we can only speculate, but some people just have, they've apparently gotten a boost that doesn't make any sense for them to get otherwise. Um, yeah, I'm not going to name any specific pages, but most people, when they go online and they type in politics, they just get flooded with a bunch of information from from liberals and conservatives, despite the fact that a lot of users and most of the comment sections and stuff like that, you see lean to the left. So that doesn't make any sense. It has to be manipulated in some way uh, in that direction. Okay. Okay. So, so how can um, uh, leftists, progressives, Marxists beat um, these things, this, 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 this sort of gearing in favor of other groups? How do you uh, defeat that or how do you get around that? Uh, or do you not? You just have to come up with more and more sort of creative uh, ideas. Yeah. All right. So this is the tough question. Um, when you create a tactic that seems to be working and then they create a counter tactic to yours, if you try to beat them at their own game and just try to keep improving your knowledge of the, of the algorithm, so to speak, as we have been doing, they're eventually going to catch up and surpass you. Um, at the same time, another mistake that people make is they respond to these when they see that, that they've been targeted and they see that, oh, shoot, like I, I, my reach just went down 70%. What the heck? Mm. They become more enclosed and demoralized. Um, and that's what happened to, for example, a lot of leftists after Cointelpro. Mm. You, know, you know what happened? They were, they were spying. Yes. The Black Panthers, yeah. Yeah, uh, they became more enclosed. And, and we see now leftists saying, well, we need to go off the grid, you know, like we need to protect our communications and stuff like that. I mean, you could, if you learn how to use other engines, do that. But then the purpose of censorship is to make you irrelevant and enclose you in spaces that are not public. And when you right. respond to it by securing your communications or whatever, you're basically doing exactly what they want you to do, you know? So we have to tell people that you still need to remain in the public space. Don't enclose yourself and don't get demoralized. And at the same time, you need to do something different because they're going to eventually catch up to you if you just make it your thing to manipulate these, these algorithms as you've been doing. Um, I don't have a perfect solution to that. I have been trying to find one by reading these intelligence books and see what, what is there. The best thing that I could come up with and is when you have a system that tries to classify people, right, and monitor them, which is the kind of system that they're using now, one of the ways to beat that and other states have beaten it in the past is by spamming the, uh, the people who sent out these programs to identify you and, and to monitor you. Mm -hmm. You can spam those programs. That's what the CIA does when they know that somebody has, has sort of information, uh, has access to a node of theirs, Mm -hmm. uh, they cannot protect that node and they know that that person is going to get information from that node. Mm -hmm. The way that people respond a lot of times in the intelligence community is they spam that node so that you get so much information, it's, un it's unusable for you. Mm -hmm. And the tactic that has been going a long time, it's what Hitler did to Stalin, right? Because Stalin had information that the, the Germans were going to attack him, what Hitler did was spam him with so many dates and so much information that Stalin had no idea what was happening. Uh, so that's one thing that we that, that if the left was organized, they could utilize. Like, how did they classify you? You know, if you figured out how they classify you and you got too many people to be classified and to be detected by the algorithm, they're not going to be able to monitor that many people. And they're not going right. to be able to, to cancel that many people without causing some kind of uh, massive reaction. So um, mm. that's something mm. you could do. I suppose. For example, get a friend from Russia and give him your SIM card so that when he goes back to Russia, <laughs> right. it's secure there. <laughs> uh, right. 
that that's okay. one of the. There, there's many ways to, to just screw to just screw and spam them. We can even. I suppose it's possible to even create a program when you know that some somebody's email has been uh, hacked or whatever, and there are ways to tell when 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 that has happened. Uh, to just spam so much documents and information that they can't possibly dig through all of it. Uh, but saying this, it seems like dreaming, even though that's like the solution from the text that I've written of what happens when your network is uh, is infiltrating somebody surveilling you. That is what you're supposed to do. We don't have the capacity at the moment or the organization to do it, unfortunately. But if we did, it, we could defeat these algorithms very easily. Mm -hmm. I see. It seems to me, though, that um, the, the main focus, the most effective work is still uh, leading. So as in, instead of trying to uh, beat them at their own game, as you, as you might say, uh, is to create content, to create hype, to create buzzwords, to create sort of um, things that people latch onto uh, a campaign, a specific issue, um, a, a project of coalition building, whatever it might be, uh, that you know, you drive the narrative, you drive the national narrative, you, you get into the media, you get into the Twitter feeds, you, you get into, you, you come up with a, you know, there, there's a, a buzzword going around that you've, you've created. Um, that's probably, probably more important uh, and more effective than, than uh, you know, tweak, tweaking around in the dark with, with trying to defeat, uh, you know, the, the technical side of things. Would you not say so? Yes, going dark is never a solution. Uh, but at the same time, I think we were a step ahead in social media, and we need to be a step ahead in whatever comes after. Is uh, uh, we we do see also among the young generations, they're not going on Facebook, you know. So this isn't going to be forever. We need to be a step ahead of whatever means of communication and and things that they use and monitor that closely. So TikTok. Yes, and as of right now, I think co-ops, uh, they haven't broken through to these sectors yet, and that's a problem. Uh, most co-ops that I've seen, they're in sort of trade sectors, kind of like the trade unions are in those type of sectors. So, like, uh, there's an iron co-op here uh, in, in Las Vegas with a few people. There's a printing co-op um, with a few people. There is a hair salon sometimes develop into co-ops and stuff like that. And that's all fine, but these higher sectors that really are where the means of communication arrive in and, and pass through, we are not involved in those sectors at all. So we're not going to be able to do this in some kind of organizational capacity. What we would have to do is hope that people on the left, activists, understand what the young people are using to communicate and are able to infiltrate those spheres when those people get older. It's the same thing that we did in social media, because if you remain on Facebook and the younger generations are not gonna use Facebook, then you haven't done anything, you know? So. Mm -hmm. I see, I see. So you've gotta be, got be ahead of the game in a sense, in a sense, you gotta be. Right. right. Okay. Well, Vassal, um, if you have any other thoughts, you can, uh, you can have some final thoughts, but. Uh, I've really enjoyed what we've discussed so far. Um, do you have any final thoughts before we close the discussion? Uh, sure. I think that the the left wing, the progressive wing, or whatnot in America, and internationally, if there's anybody that wants to help grow a movement in America, we have to seriously consider a democracy at work alternative to um, the tendencies that we've had in the past that have broken up and don't have the ability to resurrect themselves. <laughs> including just relying on simple activism, including relying on, uh, on on trade unions, those tendencies are falling apart and I don't think we can bring them back. We need a strong national federation of democratic enterprises to designate their value into the development of new institutions. And when we have that and those institutions can clash with this order that we have now, it is really the only way that we can develop a consciousness of ourselves that's different than what we have now and that will direct us to fight for a better society in our interests. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Vassal. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. Goodbye. No problem. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again at some point in the future, perhaps for your uh, next forecast.
and your next thoughts. Thank you, Vassal. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.